Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called Poverty Reduction of the Soul, the Parable of Dives and Lazarus. It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, September 29th, 2013. Hardly a month goes by without some mention of the growing gap between the rich and poor. There are important disagreements about the causes, consequences, and solutions of radical inequality, but the reality is undeniable. Consider two recent studies. In his book, Who Stole the American Dream?, the Pulitzer Prize winner Hedrick Smith argues that in the last 30 years, we have become two Americas. A gross inequality of income and wealth has demolished the middle-class dream. This wasn't inevitable, says Smith. It's not the result of impersonal and irresistible market forces. Rather, it's the consequence of government policies and corporate strategies. Joseph Stiglitz, a Nobel Prize winner and former chief economist of the World Bank, comes to similar conclusions in his book, The Price of Inequality, How Today's Divided Society Endangers Our Future. Stiglitz writes, quote, The top 1% of Americans gain 93% of the additional income created in the country in 2010. Like Smith, Stiglitz says this didn't have to happen. The issue here isn't one of envy. Rather, Stiglitz fears that gross inequality threatens the very nature of civil society. Our politics, health care, education, housing, employment, the legal system, and so on. Problems are even worse in the rest of the world. According to the World Bank, in 2010, 2.4 billion people lived on less than $2 a day. The bitter irony here is that there's been significant progress in poverty reduction in the last 30 years. But just look for a moment at the yardstick, $2 a day. These people could live for two days on my Starbucks latte, and they suffer the catastrophic consequences of poverty as measured by a broad array of indices, access to safe and dependable water, life expectancy, infant and maternal mortality, literacy, and so on. This income gap this radical inequality is an old story. The Gospel for this week in Luke chapter 16 describes the economic disparity between an unnamed rich man and a beggar named Lazarus. Not to be confused, by the way, with the brother of Mary and Martha. The rich man later became known as Dives, which is the Latin for rich man that Jerome used in the late 4th century translation of the Bible. The story begins 
with the words, there was a rich man. In fact, this is exactly how the previous parable in Luke 16 about the shrewd manager begins. There was a rich man. Jesus didn't hesitate to use money as a measure of our spiritual health. The first parable about the shrewd manager is told from the perspective of that rich manager. It ends with a warning to people who love money. You cannot serve God and man. This week's story takes the vantage point of the poor Lazarus and ends with a radical reversal of fortunes. Dives the rich man dressed in the finest clothes. He ate the best food. Luke says that he lived in luxury every day. And every day he actively ignored the poor man at his gate. Lazarus, on the other hand, was chronically hungry. He wore rags. He was covered with lesions. And as much of the art about this parable emphasizes, the dogs licked his sores. Then death came to both men, as it will to each one of us. And in the afterlife, Lazarus found comfort. The rich man suffered torment, agony, and regret. In life, Lazarus begged the rich man for help. In the afterlife, it was the rich man who begged Lazarus for mercy, both on himself and his family that was still alive. But it was too late. What was done was done. As in life, now in death, a huge gulf separated the two men. Luke describes what he calls a great chasm between Lazarus and Dives. Only now their fortunes had flipped. The parable reminds me of a story about the Swiss theologian Karl Barth. When one of his students asked whether the snake literally spoke in the Garden of Eden, Barth responded, the important point is not whether he spoke, but what he said. I don't think Luke intends to describe the furniture of heaven or the temperature of hell. Whether you read this as a parable or a literal description of the afterlife, the point is the same. Jesus warns us that our time is short. Our opportunities to serve the poor don't last forever. Our economic choices shape our deepest identities and our eternal destinies. The tragic realization of Scrooge in Charles Dickens' Christmas Carol comes to mind. He said, these are the chains I forged in life. But tragedy isn't a necessity. In the language of this week's epistle, by sharing generously and being rich in good deeds, we lay up treasure for ourselves as a firm foundation for the coming age, and we take hold of the life that is truly life indeed. 1 Timothy 6. It might make us feel good, but disparaging the rich is a sign of sanctimony. 
Thank God for the wealthy women who supported Jesus, Luke 8, and for the rich man Joseph of Arimathea who tenderly buried him, and even today for all the wealthy saints who follow their footsteps. Wealth isn't intrinsically evil, but it's definitely dangerous. In helping the poor, we acknowledge that riches can hinder our salvation. We admit that we are susceptible to its seduction. 1 Timothy 6 describes the realm of riches as fraught with arrogance, traps, temptation, harmful and foolish desires, ruin, destruction, grief, and wandering from the faith. In his new book, Through the Eye of a Needle, Wealth, the Fall of Rome, and the Making of Christianity in the West, Peter Brown of Princeton documents the evolving attitudes and practices of Christians regarding wealth. He rejects two common myths. First, that of the primal poverty of the early Christians. That was true for some, but not all. And second, Although the church gained new privileges under Constantine, the emperor did not usher in a time of new wealth for the church. That didn't happen until the year 370 or so. Until then, says Peter Brown, what he calls the mediocres or in-betweeners were the church's biggest benefactors those middling people between the super-rich and the oppressed poor, like artisans, small farmers, small-town clerics, tradesmen, and minor officials. Brown calls them the solid keel of the Christian congregations through the 5th century. There are no easy answers to the hard sayings of Jesus about money. Peter Brown documents the many different ways believers grappled with parables like Lazarus and Dives. From radical renunciation by the super-rich, the anti-wealth of the ascetics, care of the poor, the everyday generosity of ordinary believers, and, by the 5th century, the clerical stewardship of massive wealth as God's providential gift. We freely share, not out of guilt, ascetic renunciation, although God calls some people to that path, out of some communistic ideal that loathes private property, nor because the poor are virtuous. Paul is clear. God richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Rather, in serving the poor, we care for our own souls by imitating the character of God himself. Only in heaven, said Mother Teresa, will we understand how much we owe the poor for helping us to love God like we should. For books this week, I review a title called Faith, Doubt, in other lines I've crossed, Walking with the Unknown God. The author is Jay Baker with Andy Meisenheimer. New York, Jericho Books, 2013, 
192 pages. I will probably be 80 years old, writes Jay Baker, and still introduced as Jay Baker, son of Jim and Tammy Fay. He's covered that personal ground in three previous books. Today, he's a co-pastor of Revolution New York City, a church that started in Phoenix in 1994 and has had subsequent iterations in Los Angeles, Atlanta, Charlotte, and Minneapolis. Forget the stained glass. These faith communities meet in bars, coffee shops, and candy stores. In this, his newest book, Baker moves from the personal to the theological. He calls his book a chronicle of doubt about a number of hot-button issues like the nature of God, Scripture, heaven and hell, and especially the very scary grace of God announced by Jesus. In Rilke's famous phrase, he's doing what all wise believers must do. He's living the questions. What Baker captures so well is how the love of God subverts our many tribalisms and idols that demand sacrifices from us. Is such inclusive grace not dangerous? Yes, of course it is. But that's the call of the kingdom that Jesus announced. Baker writes, We ought to be becoming outcasts by befriending outcasts. We should be ridiculed for hanging out with the ridiculous. We should be known for irrational grace, irrational forgiveness, end quote. And what are we saying and doing with such radical inclusions? We're simply saying, this person's a real human being, a person just like you and me. Of course, this is not what the church is known for. We're known for arguing who's in and who's out. But, writes Jay Baker, Jesus says to everyone the church says is out, come on in. Jay Baker, Faith, Doubt, and Other Lines I've Crossed, Walking with the Unknown God. For film this week, I review a title called Mary and Martha, from 2013. This mediocre movie was made for television by HBO, but at least it has the virtue of advocating for an important cause. Mary, played by Hilary Swank, is an interior designer who lives in a waterfront mansion in Virginia. As a hovering helicopter parent, she aspires to be what she calls a fantastic mom. So she takes her young son to South Africa. Mind you, this is an airbrushed Africa befitting a wealthy woman. Savannah sunsets, beautiful beaches, and singing children. But reality strikes when her son dies of malaria. Mary then we meets Martha a more grounded British housewife whose son met the same fate. 
They visit hospitals where African mothers grieve the deaths of their own children. Remarkably, just like they did. Mary and Martha become friends and then work to eradicate malaria. In real life, malaria kills over 500,000 people a year, mainly in Africa, mainly children, all preventable. So three cheers for Hilary Swank in this bad movie about a good cause, which was released, by the way, in conjunction with World Malaria Day. The title, once again, Mary and Martha. Finally, for poetry this week, we posted more poetry and prayer by the Celts. This one is extremely short. It's also one of my most favorite. It's called The Love and Affection of the Angels. The love and affection of the angels be to you. The love and affection of the saints be to you. The love and affection of heaven be to you, to guard you and to cherish you. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, September the 29th, 2013. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.